Welcome to Altamar. My name is Muni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. Let's talk about Turkey, a country of 81 million people and a bridge between Europe and Asia. For much of the past decade, Turkey was regarded as one of the world's big economic successes. But that bounty then first turned into economic desert and then like a roller coaster. Now Turkey seems to be recovering again. And the other thing about Turkey is, of course, the fact the endless discussions and controversies around Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, because of his anti-democratic and erratic policies. So, Peter, as we dive today into this impressive and super contradictory country and try to understand it further, we have a great guest, Ece Temelkuran, a renowned Turkish journalist and author of the provocative, and listen to this title, How to Lose a Country, The Seven Steps from Democracy to Autocracy. And the title says it all. <laughs> that's a title that really needs no further explaining. So, Muni, Turkey is a country that's undergone an extraordinary transformation over the past 20 years, evolving from a developing country into an increasingly urban middle economy country. I've gone so many times to Turkey throughout my life, and it's a country I really love. And you can see, you can feel the change. It's really palpable, you know, and it's managed to stay above water during the 2008 recession, which hit just about everybody in the world. It successfully reformed its institutions to comply with EU standards. It cut poverty by, you know, a really impressive amount. Some people say by half. You know, and if we take the long view and only look at the economic indicators, we could paint the positive story. But Muni, we all know that that positive story is not so positive because of politics. Well, if you look at the economy, it is a kind of a positive story. Turkey has real bad politics, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But look at the economic front. It slowed down a few years ago in the fall of the lira, indicated, and everybody was really worried about an imminent recession. And remarkably, the country has recently rebounded and kind of you know, uh, contradicted all of the all of the negative thinking, and the numbers have exceeded expectations. So predictions of a recession were obvious. The signs were all there: a weak labor market, high inflation, skittish banks, you know, cutting back on lending, plummeting investment, and 4.5 million Turks without jobs. There was a current account deficit, and the whole formula, and an avalanche of Syrian refugees, which put further strain on the economy. But despite all these signs recent rebound shows to 3% growth in 2020, and the fears of recession are dimming today. Okay, so maybe the economy is, you know, not tanking like everybody thought it would. But, you know, the political landscape is downright worrying. The country is totally dominated by the outsized figure of Erdogan, a leader that Foreign Affairs magazine calls the most baffling politicians to emerge in Turkey. I think that's a sort of uh, an Anglo-Saxon understatement. I mean, I, I could say a lot of using a lot of other adjectives about him. You know, his promise to create a new Turkey and his ambitions to reforms have been severely, severely clouded by this authoritarian style, this enormous intolerance to opposition and dissent, a merciless crackdown on the press. I have a number of friends who've all been either, you know, interrogated by the police or have been dismissed from their jobs. You know, it's a crackdown on the press, on intellectuals, on the gay community, on artists, and a generalized abuse of power. And, and you know, ideologically, to further muddy the waters during his years in power, he's managed to transform himself from this pragmatist Islamist to the voice of some of the most extreme strains of Islam. The only good political news coming out of Turkey was Erdogan's humiliating defeat, not only once, but twice in the mayor's race 
in Istanbul. And in, in August 2019, opposition leader Ekrem Imamoglu was sworn in as mayor of Turkey's largest city. I think the greatest concerns about Erdogan are on the world stage and his relations with the rest of the world, which are a reflection of his nationalist, autocratic nature. So EU membership, which he really prepared for with all the economic reforms, is today a faraway dream. His foreign policy pulls farther and farther away from Brussels every day. From his coziness with new missile deals in Russia, drilling for gas in waters around Cyprus, and then recently creating a lot of disturbance, um, announcing the will to produce nuclear weapons. He said, why can't Turkey have nuclear weapons? Erdogan is clearly a loose cannon. And, you know, the fact remains that most of his leverage comes from threats, you know, Turkey's willingness to be a haven for Syrian refugees. But he's now using that, as he did once before, to threaten Europe with this large stick. You know, his power was evident recently when Erdogan threatened to, quote, open the gates of Syrian refugees wanting to go to EU because he was complaining that Turkey was shouldering the burden of, of the refugees all by itself. And, you know, unfortunately, the EU has very little muscle in the middle of multiple domestic crises to counter these threats. And aside from that, the Turkey-U.S. relationship is equally tricky, and it also has Syria at the forefront. Trump and Erdogan are more similar than they are different, and they've had bitter arguments in the past, clashing on the Kurds issue and over Turkey's military purchases of these Russian missiles we talked about. Turkey's received the, the typical Trump recipe of fines and tariffs, insults, warnings, and it seems clear that the militaries of both countries are trying to lower the temperature by agreeing or trying to agree for the joint control of buffer zones along the Syrian border. But the fact remains that the future of this relationship rests, as it does so many times with Trump and his allies and enemies, on the delicate balance of two very similar temperaments who conduct foreign affairs basically on their own instincts and their own gigantic egos. You know, it, it, it pains me to say it, but the truth remains that Erdogan has skillfully reshaped not only his country, but his country's place in the world. And, and, you know, that influence has expanded now to Russia and China and Iran, while at the same time just making himself a real threat to civil society and freedom. And, you know, how powerful is this outsized autocratic figure who's changed Turkey? You know, has the fact that he now twice lost an election in the absolutely epicenter of Turkey's cultural and economic center in Istanbul. Does that make a difference? You know, the fact that the economy isn't out of the woods, the fact that the tensions with EU still, you know, all of that stuff still makes him vulnerable. But, you know, over the past years, that vulnerability, he seems to have gotten himself out of problems and only raised his power. So I want to, at this point, bring in our guest, Ece Temulkran. She's a Turkish journalist, an author, a columnist, a TV presenter. She was fired from her post in 2012 for writing articles critical of the government and has been named Turkey's most read political columnist. A graduate of Ankara University's Faculty of Law, she's published several fiction and nonfiction books, including two published in English. Her latest book, as Mooney mentioned before, is How to Lose a Country, The Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship, was published just a very few months ago. Eche, welcome to Altamar. Hello, Altamar. <laughs> it's really great to have you. So look, Eche, let me just start by talking a little bit about you've been very critical of President Erdogan, but the fact is he's also had enormous success. So I just want to put you in a hat that you normally don't have. 
what's the secret sauce to his success? And don't worry, we'll get to his failures in a second. <laughs> uh, well, to start with, I, I don't think I was very critical of him. Uh, I was simply doing my job, uh, questioning the power. It doesn't matter if it's Erdogan or somebody else. Uh, and when it comes to secret sauce, um, I don't think he's using any sauce. Um, but it is the near history of Turkey that created him. Um, and he, this history, this backstory of Erdogan, does, it, it doesn't start in 2002 when he came to power as a prime minister, but rather it starts with 1980 military coup. It was then uh, the entire generation of progressive people were rooted out. They were either exiled, tortured to death or simply imprisoned. And, you know, that and it was a time it was a political environment that nourished only the conservative, conservative Islamist nationalist politics. So Erdogan is actually, uh, um, a, um, you know, a, a, fruit of that era, so to speak. And his accomplishments, yeah. I'm mean, like, he treated, I think, I mean, he treated the illness uh, in Turkey with, with another illness. He inflicted an illness to cure an illness of Turkey. As you know, Turkey is a, you know, particular, has a particular location just in between Europe and Asia. And we have been taught in in elementary schools all our all our lives that it is neither west nor east but this created some sort of inferiority syndrome uh, so to speak uh, towards west and we always felt a little bit uh, less than we are when we uh, met with the westerners and I uh, the ideology of the establishment was to uh, go go to West and, you know, follow the West, be better than them, and so on and so forth. And this created a constant pressure uh, since the beginning of the Republic in 1923. And I think this exhausted a nation. And then he came up with this uh, superiority uh, idea, uh, reminding people that we are, we have been Ottomans, we are the ascendants of, uh, we are the sons and daughters of Ottomans. So we are actually a sp superior nation to the East. So uh, he changed the entire setup in people's mind uh, regarding Turkey's location and regarding Turkey's geopolitic uh, you know, uh, location on the map. Uh, we grew up with this uh, map in our uh, classrooms uh, where you see the Western countries colorful and, you know, all lively and so on. And where the East, you know, Iraq, Iran, Syria and USSR then uh, were grayish yellow. And then, you know, there are, you know, he created a new map where you don't see the West anymore so much, but the, you know you see the Eastern countries more. So regarding his goal, I think he he accomplished to change the mental location of the country in people's in a nation's head. I, I love that metaphor, but you say he cured that he cured this uh, he gave the country a new mental location with the medicine that is both highly Islamist and highly autocratic. Exactly. I mean, like. As you, as anyone who knows a 
bit of Middle Eastern politics would know that it's a Pandora's box. And if you open it, if you want to be a player in that, you have to play a very, very complicated game. So I think Erdogan's policies pull Turkey into Middle Eastern, you know, desert, so to speak. And it's all dusty and blurry there. And since he came to power, especially after his second term, 2007, uh, Turkey has been crawling in Middle Eastern politics, which became, you know, really troublesome after the Syria war began. Let me let me ask you then, AJ, is he as strong as he looks? I mean, certainly to many of us in the outside world, he looks to be in a position of in, enormous strength. But yet, you know, the political threat to Erdogan really surprised everybody when Mr. Imamoglu suddenly won not one, but two elections in Istanbul. It's the first time the opposition seems to have a leader. So tell us a little bit, is he as strong as he looks? And does the opposition really have a leader in Mr. Imamoglu? I think when speaking of Erdogan or Putin or Trump or such leaders, uh, strength is irrelevant. What matters is being powerful or not. And Erdogan is a very powerful person, very powerful politician. And yes, Imamoglu, the new Istanbul mayor, has challenged him like he has never been challenged before. And the irony is Imamoglu chose the path that Erdogan followed in 2002 when he became prime minister of Turkey. So, And he is doing this radical love uh, policy. He's talking about compassion. He's talking about living together. He's talking against the polarization that has been ruining the entire country. So he is a real political threat, I would say, in terms of Erdogan's uh, ambitions. But what he does, what Imamoglu does, is something interesting. Uh, nobody really talks about 2013 Gezi uprising anymore because it failed at the end of the day. But then it changed something in people's minds and it gave people an idea of new Turkey and even an ideal of new Turkey. And I think Mr. Imamoglu harvested this political energy that has been waiting there since 2013. And he is now mobilizing and politicizing that energy even further to become a political leader that represents the other half of the Turkey, and he's aiming for more. Um, he's also aiming for AKP, AKP voters that have been disappointed by Erdogan's malpractice and Erdogan's circle wrongdoings and so on. So I think he's a real threat and he's going to rise, you know, he's going to climb the ladder of power in the coming years, I think. Eche, as his uh, power increases, so does his repression against journalists and against women, intellectuals, gays, and anyone who is uh, a dissenter. Is there, is there any type of counter uh, weight to this repression? And is there any way the international community can help Turkish civil society? If you ask this question, like, um, in 2012 or in 2013, I would say something else. But now it's 2019 and, you know, there's Trump, there's Brexit, there's Bolsonaro and so on and so forth. 
As a matter of fact, in, it was 2016, right after the military coup, I was in London and launching my previous book, Turkey, the Insane and the Melancholy. And I told about all the pressure, all the oppression that women, you know, intellectuals, journalists are getting from the government. And a very nice lady put her hands together and she very compassionately asked me the question, what can I do for you? What can we do for you? And I said, what can I do for you? <laughs> Because it was the time of Brexit and they didn't still believe that they would see, let's say, Boris Johnson as their prime minister. Or Trump was newly elected and nobody thought that he would talk about a second term as the American president. So I think this is a global issue. I do believe that it's a global issue and nobody helps anybody else, but we help each other. And nobody is in a moral high ground or a political, in a politically better situation to help Turkey at the moment. Everybody's, the Western countries' plates are full, I think, at the moment. So you see, I'm like, we are living in a crazy time when few men, Putin, Boris Johnson, Trump, Mr. Erdogan, are um, deciding about the destiny of humanity. So I think people who are in the opposition in, the, in those countries that are subjected to right-wing populism, they should start talking to each other as much as these guys uh, are talking to each other. So it is not a matter of helping, but it's a matter of imagining and then organizing an international community that is against right-wing populism or authoritarianism. I think uh, all those old words, you know, will come to fashion again, like solidarity and uh, resistance for all of us. Mitchie, I wish we had more time to talk more about that, because I think that's an interesting thing. I, I personally think that Perhaps we're at a more positive turning point given events, perhaps in Israel, Italy, and some other places. But I want to turn toward foreign policy issues. And as you can imagine here in the United States, there have been many people who have expressed a lot of concern about the fact that Turkey has purchased missiles from Russia. And so how concerning are Erdogan's approaches and business dealings with Putin and his also willingness now to, at least publicly said, his willingness to explore the production of nuclear weapons. And so is he aiming to destabilize NATO? What, what, what do you see as his, as his purpose? You know what concerns me? <laughs> the absurdity of the situation. I don't know if you not, if, you know, quote that footage, but when they were talking about the missiles and, you know, all these rockets and everything, uh, you know, heavy machinery, they were eating ice cream and they were joking about the ice cream, who's going to buy the ice cream, Putin and Erdogan. So imagine that the destiny of humanity is, you know, discussed through an ice cream joke between two men. This is, this is, the, this absurdity, this banality is very concerning to me. It would be naive, I think, to think that it is Erdogan who is damaging or destroying NATO and, its, and the alliance within NATO, NATO. And it would be naive to think that all these supranational and international institutions are in, still intact. They are not. I mean, like, uh, United Nations uh, recently tried to stop the deforestation of Amazon And all these world leaders came together and Bolsonaro just said, you know, 
go away. <laughs> I don't. I don't care. My country is sovereign, and I am leading this country, so I'm not stopping it. So, UN is not working. NATO is not working. Has not been working already. So. Uh, this is why, and you, United European Union is obviously is crumbling. So I think all these authoritarian leaders are, you know, abhorring the vacuum that has been emerging due to the crumbling international institutions. But you know, within this massive power shift between Russia, China, United States, and you know, and in Middle East. It is impossible to predict something, I guess. All the predictions would be a little bit in vain because literally there are a few people, a few men on the planet deciding what they're going to do. And this is concerning me. They're deciding to do things while they're eating ice cream and joking about who's going to pay for the ice cream. So, yeah. Let's talk about Syria for a minute. Turkey has received many, many Syrian refugees. And recently, President Trump and President Erdogan announced some sort of an arrangement, a joint operation at the Syrian border. Yet recently, in the past few days, we've heard about Erdogan's threat to open the doors of those refugees to the West. Is the EU that, as you mentioned, and we all know, is each country has its uh, plate full with domestic issues at all capable of counteracting this enormous threat. This bargain has been going on for too long now. European Union is part of the bargain. European countries uh, are part of this bargain. And Mr. Erdogan is playing with these people's life, with Syrian lives, and the European Union is bargaining on them. And recently, the European Union came up with this idea of saving the uh, European st uh, lifestyle and so on. So uh, all this discussion is becoming incredibly immoral. But I do not think that there is a European country or European leader at this point of time who is going to, who want, who really wants to reverse the this you know, current of immorality. So I think European Union, uh, rather than trying to, you know, save the European way of life, should really think about how to save the institution and the ideals of the institution. The other day I was in Switzerland giving a talk and I said, the black box of neoliberalism is in Switzerland. And when someday the system crashes like a plane, they will have to crack open Switzerland to understand what went wrong. If European countries really want to take it to another level and you know, do something against Erdogan's bullying against European Union, I think they should really talk about money, his money. Tell us a little bit more about that. Oh, I can't. <laughs> That's too dangerous. <laughs> you can't. You cannot just dangle that in a in a show and not. Uh, and... <laughs> no, I'm not doing journalism uh, since 2012 because I lost my job, and also it is very dangerous. And also, I think, um, yeah, I will cut it there. I'm not answering. <laughs> Okay, so let me let me let me move. To, you, you've mentioned now a couple of times. You've talked about the you, sort of the world as being big, momentous decisions are being made in the world by it's this group of men. So now I want to reduce to talking about two of these men, which is Trump and Erdogan. They seem so cut from very similar cloth, and they seem 
in ways very similar, but they also they also don't get along all that great. T- tell me about how you, you you seem to be a good, really good reader of personalities. So tell me, t- go. Let's pretend you're a psychologist. How do you read that relationship? The other day, a very well-known writer told me, "Oh, you're that woman, the dictatorship woman. <laughs> I am becoming a dictator." expert now. I don't think this whole thing is about their personalities, by the way. It is a political and historical process, and we have to read it like that. But you know what? I'm like, it's not about that. those men. These are only the, let's say, harbingers of a bigger crisis, I think. And they are showing us that the ideal person uh, defined for our times, uh, defined for the system, is such a person that he can do anything to seize the power and stay in power. And I think they are the representatives of the neoliberal ideals. Winner takes it all and you can you are allowed to do anything to seize the power. So I don't I, I don't see any difference between Putin, Chinese leader uh, Erdogan or you know Netanyahu or You know, all these guys, they're all the same and they are representing the new world. Uh, What is terrifying is that their personality cult is almost, you know, treated as given. And it seems like there are less and less people uh, who are not mesmerized by their ruthlessness. This is what is terrifying because there have been such, you know, leaders in the history, but they were treated as, you know, you know, clownish figures and they were erased from the history. But now we're living in a time when these, where, where these guys are, you know, free to do what they want and they, they are staying in power. That is appalling and the lack of opposition is appalling. We have very few minutes left, but I wanted to give you a chance just to talk about the book with a, an extremely provocative title. Are you predicting the end of democracy? I'm not predicting it. I am just showing, in fact, in how to lose a country, why democracies are failing today. Because I think it's already there, approaching very fast. And I am simply arguing that if you strip democracies from their integral part, which is social in, social justice, democracies become just... Uh, empty shells, uh, only the theatrics of itself, a uh, bad imitation. And what happens today is that this, you know, shell-like democracies are being invaded by personality cults, by strongman idea, by authoritarians. So, yeah, I think democracy is failing and it is actually us who fail democracy by not uh, protecting the, the idea of social justice enough in the last several decades. Ejitemul Kuran, thank you for that provocative uh, interview. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, Muni, I, that was, um, I, I love that interview because she gives a lot, such so many personal anecdotes, but I also feel like Eche is very down on not only the Turkey, but the world. And though she was extremely complimentary of Mr. Imamoglu's victory, I, I do think that the fact that a opposition figure not only won one election, then it was rigged sort of a la Chavez 
uh, and Alamaduro to have a second election, which they thought they were sure to win. And then he won the second election by a greater amount than the first election, I think says a lot about the resilience, the democratic resilience of people that are not yet ready to just give it up to strong men. I agree. It was a sobering, sobering interview. And also, and especially the repression with civil society is, is, is really terrifying in Turkey. But um, I, th I thought her view of the world was pessimistic. I believe that there, the pendulum is shifting. Hong Kong is an example of the protest in Moscow. But th since this is a Turkey episode, even Erdogan has two rivals, not just the mayor of Istanbul, but the recent dissent by the vice premier Ali Babakan is also encouraging. So he's starting to see that there is opposition to his style. And I think that civil society that has been so oppressed is going to follow and really create some sort of a, of a counter power in Turkey pretty soon, sooner hopefully than later. And a lot of his own survival is going to depend on this, this roller coaster capacity that the economy has to go from good to bad to good again. And he clearly has put a lot of his marbles into making sure that the economy is something that's going to stick. That's right. Hope you liked this episode. Thank you for joining us in Altamar. See you next time. <laughs>